In Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Darcy's desperately romantic confession of love is at the heart of the quintessential love story. In vain, I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Almost from the earliest moments of our acquaintance, I have come to feel for you a passionate admiration and regard, which despite all my struggles has overcome every rational objection. And I beg you most fervently to relieve my suffering and consent to be my wife. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we look at economics in two wildly different fantasy worlds. First, in the world of Jane Austen's characters, and second, in a world of vampires. Humans are walking around, no vampire owns them, so when a vampire comes along and you know sees a you know tasty human there, you know, dives right in. We'll have vampire economics in a moment, but first how pride and prejudice is connected to the father of modern economics. My first guest today is co-author of Pride and Profit, the intersection of Jane Austen and Adam Smith. Michelle Vakris teaches economics at Christopher Newport University, and she says Jane Austen channels Adam Smith in her stories and characters. Michelle, in Pride and Profit, you and your co-author find Jane Austen was very much influenced by the famous first economist, Adam Smith. How so? We think of Jane as writing about romance and young women, and Smith surely not. Well, my co-author Cecil Bohannon and I maintain that Austen and Smith were actually giving us a moral blueprint that if we follow, can be a life changer. And what did they share in terms of their understanding of what the blueprint was? It started with Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments, published in 1759, where he outlines virtues that if we adopt will lead to happiness. And Austin embellishes and brings to life those Smithian virtues and vices. The characters in her stories that follow the virtuous path are the ones that end up happily married and romanced in the end. When I think of Adam Smith, I think of the book The Wealth of Nations. He's, he's really more of a moral philosopher than an economist. Yes, he's the founding father of econ as a separate discipline and all that. But his primary role was as a moral philosopher. And in Theory of Moral Sentiments, he outlines the virtues of prudence, benevolence, and justice. Now, we call that the PB&J virtues. <laughs> and then these are rooted in something that he and Austin both refer to as self-command. Then the vices are uh, things like greed and, and pride and vanity. So Smith often gets characterized as being in favor of greed is good kind of capitalism, you know, from like Gordon Gecko in the movie Wall Street. But nothing could be further from the truth. Greed to Smith was a vice. Remind me of whether their lives intersected. Their lives only overlapped by about 15 years. Smith could have been perhaps a, a young grandfather or an older father to Austin. She died of a disease when she was only 41. Do you see evidence of Smith's influence on Jane Austen when it comes to young women marrying, or is it more about money, or just simply how to live prudently? Yes, Smith uh, and Austin 
both were in favor of prudence as a virtue, and certainly in Austin's time, it was often prudent to marry. Austin never did, but uh, most of the characters in her novels are relatively impoverished women of the gentry class who, uh, in order to not be a burden on their families, would uh, engage in, in prudent marriages. Some, though, marry for love. And I think at this time that when Austin was living is when we were moving away from marriage for monetary reasons towards marriage for personal fulfillment. You yourself are an economist. Are you also a Jane Austen devotee? I certainly am now after this book project. <laughs> what about your co-author? Was he always someone who read deeply of Jane Austen? No, and uh, you know the book came about. It's kind of a funny story. Cecil was uh, rereading Smith for fun one summer because you know that's what we economists do, and uh, he was on vacation at a beach house. And he was looking for something to read and had a bunch of free things loaded onto his Kindle. And so he came across Sense and Sensibility. And he sat down and he thought, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm reading Adam Smith. And the idea for the book came that way. And we made the project happen. So he actually saw passages lifted by Austin of Smith? The, the Enlightenment themes of the time were in the air. So it's no surprise that two writers in somewhat similar time periods, had similar language. But some of the parallels are just uncanny. Can you give me a few passages you could read aloud that show Austin and show Smith? Uh, certainly. I'll start um, with a small one where Smith is talking about pride versus vanity in Theory of Moral Sentiments. And he says that even though these two things seem similar, they are yet very different from one another. Meanwhile, in Pride and Prejudice, the character Mary Bennett tells us that vanity and pride are different things, though the words are often used synonymously. So both Smith and, and Austin are telling us that pride and vanity seem to be similar things, but are in fact very different things. Fascinating. And others? Well, my favorite one, this one I have actually inscribed on a necklace. There's a character in Mansfield Park, Fanny, who is talking to her suitor, Henry Crawford. And Henry's trying to get her to decide for him whether or not he should stay in town. Now, he's secretly hoping, of course, that she wants him to stay in town. But Fanny will have nothing of it. She will not help him make that decision because she says, quote, we all have a better guide in ourselves if we would attend to it, than any other person can be. Now, Adam Smith, in Theory of Moral Sentiments, tells us, quote, Every man is no doubt by nature first and principally recommended to his own care. And as he is fitter to take care of himself than any other person, it is fit and right that it should be so. So both Austin and Smith here, then, are illustrating that important Enlightenment theme that we have to think for ourselves. What about also the justice in the PB&J principles and virtues that they both espoused? Yes, Smith says that we ought to be just towards everyone and that we should be benevolent to people that we care about. The character that we see as exemplifying justice and benevolence 
is Sir Thomas in Mansfield Park. Sir Thomas takes his niece, his poor niece in, Fanny. Because Fanny is from a poor family, she's expected to make a good, prudent marriage. So Sir Thomas is really surprised when she turns down the engagement offer from Henry Crawford because he's doing quite well for himself and and Fanny would be, be prudently taken care of. So he thinks that she's imprudent. He goes to visit her in her dressing room and he scolds her for not taking Henry's proposal. Meanwhile, he notices that there's no fire in her room. And she responds, oh, no, no, Aunt Norris will have nothing of that. I'm not to have a fire. It's too extravagant. So anyway, Fanny goes off on her walk. She returns, and in her room is a fire. Not only that, she finds out from her chambermaid that Sir Thomas has insisted that she get a fire every day. So even though Sir Thomas was upset with Fanny, he was still just and benevolent towards her. And those are the kind of life lessons that Austen gives us in her work. It's so interesting that she drew so strongly from Adam Smith. She is the daughter of a minister, right? And he himself was a parson? Uh, He was, and he ran a school for boys. And so, yes, they both had that same moral upbringing. It reminds me of George Washington, who, when he was a young man, had a set of precepts for how to make himself a better human. And he was also living around this time. Yes, well, our founding fathers were very much influenced by Smith. They surely would have read Wealth of Nations and Theory of Moral Sentiments. Smith cautioned us that in pre-commercial society, to trade was seen as not gentlemanly. But in commercial society, trade is a win-win. Trade leads to a virtuous cycle where by doing well for myself, I have to serve others. And we definitely see this in Austen's novels. We see some characters that disdain trade, and we see other characters that give trade the respect it deserves. For example, uh, in Mansfield Park, they talk about the businessmen as being late and discourteous and charging outrageous prices and that sort of thing. Whereas in Emma, there's the Cole family who are seen as very genteel and, and, and part of Highbury society. Likewise, in Pride and Prejudice, we see the Gardner family that Mr. Darcy befriends, and the Gardners are active traders at the time. So finally, we're starting to see respect for earning a living by creating value instead of just relying on inheritances. So Smith is cautioning us If business isn't respected, then not enough people, not enough good people will go into business, and that'll take us down a wrong path. If, as you were saying earlier, he really did not espouse unbridled greed in the pursuit of money throughout one's life, what did he have to say about the pursuit of money and about greed? Greed, he said, is one of those selfish and what he called extravagant passions that may cause us to, quote, disturb the peace of society, end quote, to get what we want. So greed in Smith's world is actually bad for us. Greed is also bad for us in Austin's world. The character that exemplifies greed 
is General Tilney in Northanger Abbey. He married well to a woman with a very large fortune, and he refused to sanction the marriage of his daughter until somehow he became a viscount. He also eyes Catherine Moreland for his son to marry because he thinks that she's rich. And then he ends up finding out otherwise and throwing her out of the house. So greed is a very bad motivator to both Smith and Austin. I'd like to tell you about a, a fascinating parallel between Smith's thought and Austin's thought. It was the first one that my co-author Cecil noticed and the one that inspired us to write this book. It's this concept of self-command. To Smith, self-command was the root of all virtue. And we see a fabulous illustration of self-command and the lack thereof in Austen's characters Eleanor and Marianne from Sense and Sensibility. Marianne is the complete opposite of self-command. When she finds out that Willoughby has jilted her, she loses it. She has a complete pity party, locks herself up in her room, makes life miserable for everyone around her, and makes herself physically ill. Meanwhile, Eleanor, when she thinks she's been jilted, quote, Eleanor was silent. Eleanor's security sunk, but her self-command did not sink with it. So yes, her security sunk, because after all, if she's not going to get married, she can't support herself. But she kept her self-command. And Smith tells us that if we face adversity, it's important to turn that adversity into something productive. Don't wallow in pity. In fact, go out among your friends and, and, and even among people that you don't know. Stay active and productive. And that's what Eleanor does. As soon as, as Edward left the house, Eleanor sat down to her drawing table and busily employed herself the whole day. Later on in the novel, she, she feels sorry for Edward because he's going to end up with the, that awful Lucy Steele as a wife. And Marianne learns to appreciate self-command, and she ends up winning in the end, too. What do you think were some of the most powerful messages, not from Austin, but from Adam Smith, when it comes to struggling to lead more virtuous lives? Smith's main idea is that we naturally want to be loved. Not only that we want to be loved, we want to be worthy of that love. We want to be praised, but we want to be worthy of that praise. And it's by following his moral code that we can achieve that kind of happiness. In other words, we want approval, but we also want to be able to look in the mirror and like what we see. The problem is we're subject to a lot of self-delusion, and it's very easy to go down that, uh, that less virtuous path. But if we, if we develop that self-command, self-command, I, I don't think you can underestimate the importance of bringing back self-command as a virtue. If, if we develop that self-command and those virtues, it's almost like it's a self-help book, if you will, Theory of Moral Sentiments. Well, Michelle, thank you for sharing your insights on this on With Good Reason. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. 
Michelle Vakers teaches economics at Christopher Newport University. She's co-author of Pride and Profit, the intersection of Jane Austen and Adam Smith. Coming up next, economic decision-making if we were invaded by vampires. My next guest is an economist who has an unusual way of studying human behavior. Dan Farhat teaches economics at Radford University. He uses computing and social simulation to look at what would happen to the economy if humans and vampires had to coexist. Dan, tell me about this trend to sort of look at vampire economics, simulations of economic models between humans and zombies, humans and vampires. What gives? So this is a field I like to call social science fiction. <laughs> so trademark. I became interested in this, you know, after watching movies like The Walking Dead um, and the hundreds of other vampire movies that I would watch, you know, as a lonely single man. Um, you know, economist, not a very popular characteristic <laughs> in a mate, I was just saying. Uh, but what I had found when having a look at some of the economics about vampires, the economics of zombies, papers that were already out there, is that this is actually a very difficult problem. You have two populations. One population is feeding off the other. One population is defending itself against the other. If they don't get along in the right way, it leads to some pretty catastrophic outcomes for each, for both. You can, they can wipe each other out. They can wipe each other out. Um, so one thing that's really popular right now is what's known as the tragedy of the blood commons, when vampires drive humans to extinction. That's like the economic principle we all know, the tragedy of the commons. Exactly. When we overgraze the field and don't have enough for all the cattle. Right. I mean, the origin of that is property rights. You know, humans are walking around, no vampire owns them. So when a vampire comes along and, you know, sees a, you know, tasty human there, dives right in. And that ends up depleting, you know, the pool of humans that everybody feeds from. Uh, so the common solution to that is private ownership. You know, <laughs> uh, if a vampire can, you know, establish ownership over people. And tend the herd. Yeah. Then there you go. You've solved this over-depletion problem. And this is, I think, one of the topics mentioned um, in the book uh, that I contributed the chapter for. How did you come to contribute a chapter to this very popular book, Economics of the Undead, Zombies, Vampires, and the Dismal Science? I answered an ad. So the name of the chapter is Between Gods and Monsters, Reason, Instinct, and the Artificial Vampire. I use artificial reality, artificial social simulation. I create them in the computer. You, so you have sort of a sim city of vampires? Exactly, huh. yes. A little community filled with artificial people that I created, filled with artificial vampires that I created. Um, they interact how I tell them to interact, uh, and I let them go. They do their thing, um, and I see sort of what the results are for each population. Uh, and from that, I can make some you know, suggestions about how they can improve themselves. So what happens between your people and vampires? Oh, they die a lot. Uh, in some cases, humans starve to death trying to defend themselves from vampires. In other cases, vampires starve to death because of the tragedy of the blood commons. There are policies which we can recommend. For example, sometimes it's okay if the government covers up vampire activity. It keeps people from over-investing in defense. Uh, 
sometimes it would be nice if vampires could collect taxes, try to fund some VTD campaigns. That's vampire transmitted disease. <laughs> uh, you know, because vampires, they don't only eat from humans. They also sire from humans. They reproduce from humans. And get infected by get humans. infected in some cases. Yeah. Um, you can program them to love. I mean, they don't not feel it, but react to a number that I tell them equals love. They can become vengeful. They can have enemies. They can turn around and help the humans if you want to program them that way. In some situations, vampires will actually try to integrate themselves into the rich neighborhoods. And maybe that's why when you look at Dracula, I mean, he's an aristocrat. He's a count. He's in the rich neighborhood. In some cases, humans set up these roaming death squads. Vampire hunters keeps the vampires from eating themselves to extinction. Uh, so there's a whole wide variety of different things that you can program into these computer models and that you can learn from the computer models. Um, Are you more attached to your vampires or your humans? Uh, interestingly, I tend to be more attached to my vampires. I give my vampires more recommendations on how they can survive. You know, try to keep them equal. <laughs> So is this just a fun hobby on the side? Or are you trying to learn something from it, this simulation? It is both. A, it is awesome, super fun. But there's also quite a few really important lessons that you can learn by observing these artificial people. You can program people to not make rational decisions. Now, this particular environment, the human vampire ecosystem, should not have any rationality. Right? The whole image when we see vampire movies and vampire books is that people are afraid. Vampires have this uncontrollable need to feed. Both sides feel hate. These are situations where you can't stop and make calculated decisions. You can't make rational choices. You just don't have the time because the vampires are, you know, they're bearing down on you. And so this environment, I find, where you don't need rational choices, where you can put in the rules for them, is an ideal kind of simulated world. Uh, so this is why it's great to have you know, simulated environments, virtual worlds, because they actually produce results that mathematical models cannot always generate or explain. So we like to assume that people are perfectly rational. But in reality, there's all these things that we have going against us when we try to sit down and make choices. Things like fear, love, personal traditions, you know, family expectations. Uh, and, and so it's you know, not always ideal to rely on mathematics. Um, and this is something that economists have sort of been talking about for a long period of time. Um, it's just the, you know, the majority of economics is still highly steeped in mathematics, which is great. What, uh, has it given rise to sort of a splinter group of new economists? There's always been some of these splinter groups around. Um, the fancy name is heterodox economists. So if you need a Scrabble word, there you go. What is that? Uh, heterodox, sort of different than the group. For a long time, uh, this was kind of a minor population amongst economists, but it's been growing you know, as we have new tools available, like computer simulation, there's actually some new medical tools that are available, like hooking people up to an MRI machine and having them make choices and seeing what part of their brain lights up. 
you know, really getting in there is seeing what people are biologically doing when they make choices. Wow. Economists are looking at some of the human impulses at that level. Yes. At the biological level, at the neuro neurological level. I focus more on the social level. How are behaviors sort of grow and evolve? I mean, natural selection, uh, determining which behaviors survive. Natural selection over eons, do you mean? So uh, biological evolution, you know, like opposable thumbs, that takes, you know, millions of years. Behavioral evolution or social evolution can happen in a very short amount of time. Behaviors can be subjected to the same kind of natural selection that, you know, physical characteristics are. I mean, they'll die out if they don't result in some benefits to you or to the group as a whole, to the population. What are some of these behaviors that that you see change fairly rapidly in recent years? Do you mean like young boys now addicted to video games to the exclusion of everything else? Yes, things like that. Modern examples include things like texting while you walk. I don't know if you've noticed that uh, young people can text while they walk and be fine. So in a recent study, I was interested in finding out whether or not people will voluntarily contribute to the production of a product that we all share. And we call these products public goods. You know, us paying our taxes to build roads. In, in the old economics way of thinking, this is a problem. It's not in your best interests to pay for a good that you can get for free. How do you get those people who are listening to NPR to send in their monies? That's right. So even though it's free, doesn't mean you shouldn't pay for it. Um, so I create an environment filled with artificial people. Some of them are programmed to contribute, and the others are programmed not to contribute. So in a population where a, a large population of contributors is beneficial, then nature will select that group to evolve and carry on. Um, and the free riders, these people who don't contribute, will die out. Uh, I look at under what conditions that happens. And when the government steps in and starts taxing people to provide the good, what do they do to that evolutionary process? I would think the free riders would live on. You, you'd be surprised if there's too many free riders. This public good never gets produced, and everybody's worse off. But there are situations where when we look at a simulated world, a population full of contributors evolves to dominate. Dominating contributors build empires? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so contribute to NPR. <laughs> Dan Farhat teaches economics at Radford University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. This June 16th, as they do every year, 
Fans around the world celebrate Bloom's Day, named after Leopold Bloom, the central character in Ulysses. My next guest is a world-renowned Joyce scholar. Yolanda Vavjutska is a professor of English at Radford University and is the author of numerous books on James Joyce. Most people say James Joyce is one of the greatest authors of the 20th century, and yet people are really intimidated by most of his works. Why is his writing so daunting? Joyce's writing is not what you would call page turners. You don't really read it as a, as a romance or as a, um, a great detective novel. Joyce's task when he was composing Ulysses was to render the working mind, the thinking mind, and how senses and sight and smell and all the other senses participate in prompting thoughts and stirring memories and sort of thoughts chasing one another. So it's really great to see that you are in somebody's mind and you're looking out through them rather than a narrator telling you, and next he went here and then he went somewhere there and then he felt this and then he smelled something else. We don't hear that in Joyce at all. We are in the character and looking through his or her eyes and ears and uh, tastes and everything. What was his childhood like in Dublin? Big family? Well, at first, um, his family was quite well off. His father had some property in Cork. He was a tax collector. And when Joyce was very young, he actually attended for three years a very privileged uh, boarding school. When Parnell died, a big historical figure, many people who supported Parnell have lost their jobs. And one of those people was Joyce's father. Uh, after Parnell's fall, when Joyce's father lost the job, the kids kept coming. Uh, his mother had, we think, anywhere between 14 or 16 pregnancies, but there were 10 surviving children. So by the time a, a Joyce is about 12, 13, 14, he's got a whole bunch of siblings. His mother actually dies very young, 44. Joyce wrote, How sick, sick, sick I am of Dublin. It is the city of failure, of rancor, and of unhappiness. I long to be out of it. Wow. I mean, he spent the next, what, four, five decades writing about Dublin. That's right. <laughs> well, there's actually more. He thought that uh, Dublin was a center of paralysis, and he thought that if you want to seek any kind of adventure, you, you have to seek it outside of Dublin, of Ireland. Joyce thought that Ireland shouldn't look back. Joyce thought that Ireland should look forward, cutting off the ties to the classical old world and uh, forging ahead with new ideas and new ways of thinking about reality, new ways of seeing reality. Examples later on, for instance, of whether Picasso or Braque, the way they saw uh, world, the cacophonic music that was developing at that time, the modern dance that was being forged, the cinema, all of these aspects have been of great influence to a young uh, mind of Joyce's, that mind that was like a sponge. That's interesting. So that analogy of Picasso being a fantastic artist, but stretching himself as a painter to produce the kinds of cubist works we later saw, you can think of Joyce in the same way. Absolutely. He was very much in the forefront of the same kind of experiment that we really see not only in all arts, but uh, in the new emerging cinematic technique, when you have, you know, cuts between scenes, when you narrate story very differently than you would in a, in a novel. Did there come a time when he actually rejected his religion? Uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> the, way, the way I see this is like Joyce was able to take himself out of Ireland and Catholicism, but I don't think that he ever took Catholicism and Ireland out of him. 
So Dublin stayed there. And although he was what we would call a renegade Catholic, his works are absolutely permeated by Catholicism, by by the faith, by the rituals of the faith. So it did stay with him, although he was not a practicing Catholic. One thing that we know is he told Nora when he met her in 1904, he said that he will never marry, that he will never participate in a Catholic Church oppression of women, that he does not believe in a family as a structure because he saw what happened to his family when his mother died relatively young and his father was drunk. So, of course, in 1904, she does indeed follow him, knowing full well that he told her he won't marry her. Indeed, they didn't finalize their marriage in legal terms until 1931. Since 1904 to 1931, they lived, well, basically very closely together. They raised two children. But Nora had wits about her. She was incredibly savvy as to how to live, what to do, what's right, what's wrong. Some people are just born with this immediate, you know, knowledge. And Nora had that sense of centeredness about her that attracted Joyce greatly. And she also thought that Jimmy, as she called him, would have done much better if he sang. Joyce, by the way, was a wonderful tenor. So she thought that he would make much more money singing. And, you know, instead he was sitting, you know, closed in a room somewhere, giggling quite often to himself, and she would would remark on that. And also uh, working very hard on this incomprehensible novel, Ulysses, that Joyce asked her to read that she supposedly never did. Let's talk now about Ulysses again. It's not the first book. It's one he spent a long time writing. How long? Oh, about close to a decade. Tell me about the day. It is indeed one day. In the life of Stephen Dedalus, who is sort of an alter ego for Joyce, artistic alter ego. And during this one day, we meet Stephen in the morning and we meet Leopold Bloom in the morning separately. And then throughout the day, we sort of follow the paths through Dublin, and we see them cross paths once or twice, but they never actually yet meet until later on in the evening. And so the the two not only meet, but also sit in Bloom's home and have cocoa and a conversation about Catholicism and Judaism. So in some respects, critics have seen this pattern as a sort of a son and a surrogate father figure meeting through the day, wandering alone and uh, having their wonderful thoughts and and adventures, but eventually meeting in the evening and uniting over hot cocoa. So how's a book that is focused like Ulysses is on the single day in June at all like the epic by Homer, Ulysses? Well, it's probably more like anti-epic, because in some respects, nothing really happens in in Dublin that day. There is a funeral of uh, Bloom's friend, and then there's uh, a procession, the royal procession happening, and then there's a little cloud over the sun, and there's a little clap of thunder, and then there's some people walking across Dublin, somebody goes to lunch, and, you know, nothing really much happens there. And yet the wondering does happen. And the wandering of the mind, of both mind of Stephen Dedalus and of Bloom. But I read it for the words. Give, let me give you an example. There's a, a word, four-letter word, S-L-L-T. Can you pronounce it? S-L-L-T. I'm trying not to say the wrong thing, but I'd say salt. Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> Bloom is sitting in the in the newspaper waiting, and uh, and he actually sees a set of papers coming at him on the on the flyboard, and the word shows up. Okay, so so it reads like more or less like this. If I remember well, the quotation: the first machine jogged uh, forward its flyboard with the 
the first uh, batch of papers. So what you see is not that somebody tells you that papers came in, but that aspect of saying it. Uh, Bloom then thinks almost human, the way it's to call attention. And the door too is creaking, asking to be shut. Everything speaks in its own way. So it's really, to me, reading out loud Joyce's work brings me to the joy, my own joy, and just marvel at the language that speaks itself rather than a narrator speaking it to me and telling me what, what happens. So I maybe I'm just strange uh, that way, that I, I really truly derive great, great joy of vocalizing those, those onomatopoeic sounds that are just funny. Because once you start reading it, it is actually hilarious. So I don't care that they missed each other in the library. I'm reading sort of vertically for the depth of language rather than horizontally for action, you know. So people, I mean, this is a book that was actually banned in the United mm-hmm. States and in England until yes. 19... In the United States until 1933. Printers themselves would refuse to put the book together. So before the book was even published, Joyce was already condemned and it was quite notorious. So of course, once you have this aura of notoriety, uh, the Americans who would come to Paris during the years of prohibition would buy the book, wrap it in uh, Shakespeare's works and smuggle it back to the US. And uh, if somebody was caught smuggling it, they would face court. From today's perspective, one really wonders why it was banned at all. Uh, maybe I'm just kind of partial because I am a Joyce scholar, but it, it really is a, is a great, joyful celebration of very simple humanity. So you've got rather ordinary people with rather ordinary desires, with rather ordinary lives and uh, fears and, and expectations and little vices that they have. And uh, it's a very humanizing reading because you realize that the wisdom that Joyce placed in this book is with, a, with an ordinary, simple, very good person, because all of these people are actually very good. Human goodness in them is quite radiant. Are Bloom and Molly in any way James Joyce and Nora? Most likely. Uh, of course, James Joyce wasn't Jewish. Uh, it is important that the character of Leopold Bloom is Jewish, and it's based, as we speculate, on one of his friends from Trieste, Ettore Schmitz, who became a writer later, and he wrote under the uh, pseudonym of Italo Svevo. So these were very good friends of Joyce's and very good people, and Joyce celebrates the goodness of these human beings in, in his novels. So tell us a little bit about the origins of Bloomsday. When did that start? Well, Bloomsday started in the late 60s with a small symposium when some you would say Joyce enthusiasts got together and decided to, you know, talk about the complexities of the novel. It's really like a carnival. You will see, for instance, people standing in a particular spot that's mentioned in the book, and he or she will be reading. Uh, another thing that we do is uh, on, on Bloomsday, you're supposed to have a, a kidney breakfast. I mean... <laughs> And why is that? Because Bloom starts his day with a kidney. He likes his mutton um, uh, kidney and he likes the tangy taste of urine in it. So it's pretty hilarious because he also burns it a little bit. So we, we <laughs> speculate. Burns urine. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> we speculate whether we should burn our kidneys or not. But what I really like about Bloomsday is if you're in Dublin at that day, you go to a place called Davy Burns, which is where Bloom has his uh, famous lunch of gorgonzola sandwich and glass of burgundy. And it's a very difficult place to get to on that day because it is, of course, as you can imagine, packed. And you've got, you know, about three, five, seven dozen of blooms over there, everybody dressed in an Edwardian garb uh, with their, you know, dark suit, because, of course, that day Bloom also goes to the funeral, so we have to have a dark suit on. And there's Molly Blooms all over the place with their, ma- with their makeups and with their, you know, Edwardian dress and with their uh, 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 top parts rather exposed. <laughs> <laughs> so that they look sort of like partly negligee. And, uh, and uh, so it's, it's a really great, great scene because all these characters walk around and Dubliners are, are the first to party and they really are fabulous. So do you think Ulysses is still good for us today? I think it's wonderful. And when I introduce it to my students, I can see a temperament in a student. Those who dive into it right away and giggle at the at the phrasings or allusions or words. And those who are baffled by it because of the initial difficulty or demand that it may put uh, on the reader. Uh, having worked with this book for so many years now, I, I still discover new things in it. And I still, uh, you know, my, my knowledge of history is tested and my knowledge of ge- uh, Dublin's geography is tested and allusions to literary everything is tested. But that's, you know, it's, it's sort of like you live with this book rather than read it. So once you learn to live with it, it's not about a prop for, you know, as an antidote for whatever happens in life. <laughs> Good escape tool. <laughs> Yolanta, thank you for sharing your insights on James Joyce with me today and with good reason. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to the studio. Thank you. Yolanda Vavjutska is a professor of English at Radford University and is the author of numerous books on James Joyce. To be honest, Joyce is a difficult read. Many frustrated readers complain his writing's convoluted and deliberately obscure. But our next guest disagrees with that. Irish writer and radio commentator Theo Dorgan talked with me from Dublin. He says the sheer pleasure of reading Ulysses awakens in us a love of literature and of life itself. How much have you enjoyed the reading of Ulysses? Oh, sure, I always enjoy reading it. And one of the great things of having finished the book, as I did many years ago, is that you then feel licensed to just dip into it every now and then at different places. Can you admit that initially it was a struggle? Oh, yeah. But then it was a struggle learning to walk, Sarah, you know. <laughs> and it was a struggle learning to control my temper. And it was, you know, most of the things <laughs> that have been worked by in my life were a struggle one way or another. It was a struggle to realize I was never going to be Bob Dylan. (laughs) So is there a passage in Ulysses that you can read that you think might draw some of us in who've been a little reluctant to go there? Well, well, I I think you could probably do it anywhere, but maybe before I do, I should say that something we, we, we need to unlearn about the times we live in is the speed at which we do things. We assume now that everything can be paraphrased. And we forget, for instance, that novels until quite recently were written as much for the ear as for the eye. It's not a case of, yeah, 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 hurry up, hurry up, give me the gist of it. It's sentence by sentence. And you read it for the sheer pleasure of the sentences. Uh, Here's a piece, for instance. 
A procession of white-smocked men marched slowly towards him along the gutter. He read the scarlet letters on their five tall white hats. H-E-L-Y-S. Wisdom Healy's. Why, lagging behind, drew a chunk of bread from under his foreboard, crammed it into his mouth and munched as he walked. Or staple food. Three bob a day, walking along the gutters, street after street. Just keep skin and bone together, bread and skilly. They are not boiled, no, McGlade's men. Doesn't bring in any business either. I suggested to him about a transparent show cart with two smart girls sitting inside writing letters, copybooks, envelopes, blotting paper. I bet that would have caught on. Smart girls writing something catch the eye at once. Everyone dying to know what she's writing. Get twenty of them round you if you stare at nothing. Have a finger in the pie. Women too. Curiosity. Pillar of salt. Wouldn't have it, of course, because he didn't think of it himself first. Now, what's going on here is you've got five sandwich board men you know, with boards over their shoulders, front and back, and they're advertising a stationer's Heelys. So you've got the letter H, the letter E, the letter L, Y, and then the S. And Bloom sells advertising. So he's looking at it with the professional eye. And he's saying, I see what they're doing. Ah, oh, look, that fellow's lagging behind. That spoils it. And then he's thinking radically, he thinks, that's no good. People are bored with this. They're not going to buy anything because of this. But if you're two smart girls up on a cart writing, everybody would want to know what are they doing. Hmm. So, you know, he anticipates, um, you know, what became one of the great demon drivers of our time, the advertising industry, but very intelligently. There are many intelligent people who've read James Joyce who said he could have done with a really good editor. Yes. Well, those people need what you what are called these days lifestyle coaches. They need to kick back and relax a little. <laughs> if you're in too much of a hurry to read this book at the proper relaxed pace, then you need to really think about your life and ask what you're living it for. It's not like that. The book is written to be read at a certain pace. So what is it about how he crafts his words? He loves people. He loves humanity. The great thing about Ulysses is it's a book full of love and compassion and skepticism and doubt for humanity. Joyce is all about people. People talk about the marvelous architecture of books, and it's true. They talk about his Luciferian imagination. It's true. He was a man of enormous pride and pride in his skills as an artist. But essentially he understood, as Beckett understands, that it's about telling stories. Human beings are storytelling creatures. We love a story. And Joyce is a consummate storyteller. That's so interesting that you're saying that because it seemed that to have the book transpire over the course of a day, there would be less plot, therefore less story. But you see, it's, it's, the point is that it's not a who done it or a why done it. It's who is doing it. That's the interesting thing in Ulysses. Who are these people? And we recognize something of ourselves in all of them. It isn't for nothing that Joyce makes the central character of the greatest book written in Ireland in either of our languages. He is a person who is stateless but at home. He's asked, Judah Bloom is asked at one stage, what is your nation? What is my nation? Ireland. I was born here. Which is to say, I'm a human being. This is where I happen to have been born, so I have my life here. But... It means nothing in itself. It's a defeat of the idea, the nationalist virus, in that, in that single thing. But it's a love of place and an acceptance that we have a common humanity. And it's very difficult. We live in a world now where it is very difficult for people to understand what a common humanity is. And look into your own culture as I look into mine and see how we demonize others and make them the enemy.
as if they are not like us. And it's that sense of humanity as a common denominator between people. That we are born, we live, we suffer, we have joy, we die. That is true universally for all of us in all cultures. Ulysses is an enormous celebration of that fact. And it's non-judgmental. It doesn't say we are good people and they are bad people. It says we are all here as us. I mean, the book doesn't stay in print because university professors keep putting it on their courses. The most unlikely people, which is to say the most likely people, will continue to read it because it tells us about who we are. Any advice on launching into it? A way of approaching the book to get past that initial reticence? A very good way to do it is to start with the first word on the first page and read at your own pace until you come to the last word on the last page. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm being slightly facetious, Sarah, but I also mean (laughs) it. It's not um, an obstacle course. It's a book written by a man, as it happens, about us, about people. It tells what happens to people. It's in different voices. Many of them are unfamiliar. Well, it's a good thing for us, and it's good exercise for the mind's muscles to learn to hear other voices and think in different ways. But take it at your own pace. Read it for pleasure. Trust that there is pleasure there, and let the thought police fall away. And I I just find it a recurrent joy. Each decade of my life I read it. I've read it since I read it in my teens, 20s, 30s, and I read a completely different book each time because in the meantime, people have died, people have been born, I've fallen in love, out of love, I've been disappointed, I've been elated, and so on. I've learned a little more about what it is to be human, and I bring that to the book the next time I read it, and lo and behold, it's there in the book. The book is there ready to answer to you again. There's a kind of intelligent pleasure which is the highest human good your body is there, your mind is there, your heart is there, and you feel amplified and for a moment made whole by a painting or a song or a book. And that's what the best books and the best songs and the best paintings and the best films are made for, to make us feel whole and human and completely awake. I mean, you know, you know how to read? You read Ulysses. That's all there is to it. Everything else you bring yourself. Theo Dorgan, thanks for talking with us today on With Good Reason. Very great pleasure, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Theo Dorgan is an Irish poet, writer, and radio commentator. I spoke with him from the WRTE studios in Dublin. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends smithfieldfoods.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Kelly Libby. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our interns are Georgiana Reed and Emily Hayes. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. 
I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.